So in terms of good garbage, it's rather than putting the term garbage to it, it's a resource and recycling those resources through our systems and continuing to give them new life. So that's what good garbage looks like to me. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Hello, hello. Today we get to speak to Savannah Sedel, who's the Vice President of Sustainability at Better Earth. Uh, this conversation is very interesting for me because a personal and professional life interject uh, within this conversation as uh, we speak to Savannah who's so true to her calling in her personal life as well as her professional life and it's inspiring to see what she's achieved at such a young age she's taken her talents and utilized it to build better earth in spreading various compostable products across the united states and i'm sure she will continue to do so across the world. I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation and relate to so much of what Savannah does in her life. Enjoy. Hello, hello. Today we have Savannah Seidel with us, who is the VP at Better Earth. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation for two reasons, Savannah. One is, of course, your background in policy and writing, which is a new thing, especially the writing bit on the show. And of course, your personal choices in life, which has really been interesting for me that you're not just promoting something, but actually living it. So, so thank you for agreeing to be on the show and to talk to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the space. Okay, so let's start in the beginning. What were, can you think of instances as you were growing up that influenced your life choices? I'm sure there are many, but can you just point out a few that you feel uh, influenced your thinking now and, uh, and, and influence your lifestyle now? I'd be happy to. And, you know, it's funny looking at things in hindsight. You, you see and connect those dots. But from the, the perspective of either a young child or uh, someone in their mid-20s just trying to navigate it, I couldn't have imagined where I am today. But it all makes sense as I'm looking back. I grew up proudly in a military family. My father was a captain in the Coast Guard. And we lived in many different places around the country, which gave me the opportunity to experience, being a Coast Guard kid, many different beaches and marine environments. And that's really where I first fell in love with our natural environment. You know, through that experience, too, I also was able to see firsthand the impacts of extractive resources like fossil fuels. You know, my dad would be often called into duty to oil cleanup. And then in addition to that, he would come home with stories of what was once beautiful beaches in the Caribbean that were covered with plastic pollution. And, you know, those things, those images really stuck with me throughout my life and really, I think, later informed my choices. I was also really lucky. We ultimately landed in Charleston, South Carolina, and I spent most of my childhood there. And I was lucky to be a student at a public arts school. So I majored in creative writing from the formative age of 11 to 18 <laughs> and studied writing for about 100 minutes of every day. And that was my first uh, take on the power of communication and storytelling. Uh, I ended up using that space to write my first long form novella related to how the natural environment impacted people in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, and how uh, development had caused massive changes over time. And I was able to learn through that how deeply people are connected with their natural environment and how policy can make some massive changes, both good and bad, right? That led me to a double major at Emory University in environmental sciences and creative writing. And I began to really fall in love with public policy. I got involved in our 
in our student sustainability office, uh, I began leaning into journalism and somehow found my way uh, to be able to participate in the Paris Agreement. And it was a very powerful experience for me to see firsthand that momentum as a young person towards climate action and see that I could really be a part of that change. So using that and propelling forward from that experience, I ended up going to graduate school and focusing in on environmental science and policy at Columbia University. And I ended up taking a pivot at that point and really leaned into the storytelling side of things that I was really passionate about. I ended up getting connected with Jeff Rolowski, who is an award-winning director and producer of a couple of documentaries you might be familiar with, like Chasing Coral and most recently The Social Dilemma. And I spent several years with them and and their team at Exposure Labs, really supporting taking these big stories and these big problems. Like in the case of Chasing Coral, it was a massive uh, coral bleaching event. And then distilling that story down for people on the ground in the American Southeast. Why does that story matter to them? How does it impact their daily lives? And then what are local policies that could help support them? Loved my time with Exposure Labs and learned so much through the experience. And through that, I realized that there was a lot of different opportunities, especially in the private sector, to make a massive impact towards climate action. And it was actually through that serendipitously that I met Better Earth's current president and CEO, Joseph Build, and that brought me to my current position at Better Earth. You just answered about five of my questions. <laughs> We're done. See you later. <laughs> but that's great. No, no, but... Thank you for covering that bit. But I actually want to delve in a little more on your creative writing side, because that seems to be an important part of uh, who you are. And uh, want to know more about your novella, which, of course, won an award as well. And uh, talk to us more about that. And also, how does creative writing play into what you do now? And how does it help uh, the process? I really appreciate that question. You know, I think creative writing and strong communication play a role every single day in the work that both of us are doing, honestly. And it's because the issues that we're navigating and working to solve require a lot of finesse and nuance and helping everybody feel like they can relate to that movement and take action on it. It really is at the core of things. Storytelling is what brings community together, whether if it's at your kitchen table or if it's in a boardroom. And it's what gets people to lean in and learn more and ask questions. So I think that storytelling is critical no matter where you are within the environmental or sustainability space. So I'm very thankful uh, for the years that I had at the art school to be able to bring me to where I am today. And in terms of some of my creative writing work, uh, as you mentioned, I so I, I built that long-form novella focused on my hometown and how it had changed through development. And that ultimately led me to getting a Scholastic Gold Key, which was a really special highlight for me <laughs> um, personally. And, you know, while I have not pursued other long-form projects uh, more recently, I've certainly been applying those skills in different ways across the organization. And in my personal life, I support environmental storytelling and journalism within my current town of Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. And uh, just a side note. So my wife is, uh, again, somebody who comes from the communication background. And they actually, for a long time, before we imported her to India, and that's where we lived for about eight, 10 years before uh, we moved here. Uh, and um, she started a company uh, which was called Free Rain Studios, and they produced a lot of very interesting cont- content around sustainability. One of it really became viral early years of the internet. And it was called Story of Stuff. I don't know if you've come Mm -hmm. across that, but that's Mm -hmm. something that they produced. But now she's like published about 20 books and, you know, like she's a prolific uh, writer and more of a, her her calling is more uh, in the space of equality and feminism and uh, that domain. But she's taught me so much, like similar things as uh, what you are saying, because it's all about how you put something across. So, and then how do you weave the right story in? Because it's not data that matters in the end, you know, it is, it is more the emotion. So yeah, so good that, you know, you're doing that, but also you chose to study policy and, uh, and especially for your masters at Columbia, 
could you talk more about that? What drew you to policy and how did that help uh, in the work that you do now? Absolutely. I think that what drew me to policy, first and foremost, was an experience I had. I, I spent some time working for the city of Atlanta as well and was able to learn firsthand the importance of local policy measures and the handprint that that can have on a community. So I supported them in growing their urban agriculture campaign and what became known as the Aglanta brand. And it was a wonderful experience. And I was stuck from there. And from there, you know, I went on to bring together that experience as well as the more global experience, witnessing the Paris Agreement signing I could see that we need policy as a critical lever in order for us to experience the change that we want to see. Policy is a critical lever and tool, and at both the local level as well as the global level. And I wanted to better understand, right, I'm thinking about scale, <laughs> how we can move these things forward and move them forward efficiently and quickly. And uh, that's what led me to graduate work within that space. And, you know, I think that you're seeing it already happening. Policy can move mountains. And uh, I do not feel that we can just blindly trust, you know, capitalist systems and, and the private sector on its own in order for us to reach the goals that we need. I truly believe in the lovely relationship between policy, between journalism scientists and private sector solutions in order for us to really move forward in the direction that we need to go. So through that work, I really learned a lot more about the policy side and from a packaging perspective, you know, come putting that better earth hat back on across our industry, you are seeing massive wins in terms of legislation related to shifting us forward and shifting us away from plastic pollution and shifting us towards bio-based and closed loop solutions. Yeah, you're so right. I, I just like as you were speaking, I remembered an incident in in India before COVID struck. There was just a rumor that there's going to be a plastic ban. And what was amazing for me to watch was that anywhere I would go around the world, there would be a bunch of Indian entrepreneurs looking for innovation. And as soon as that ban wasn't announced then and back in 2019, it all fizzled out. So I think policy not only obviously makes a big difference, but also enhances the speed of innovation because we, we know that the writing is on the wall. We have to take action. And, you know, if we don't, then our business will get jeopardized. And, and that's something that I saw firsthand and I could feel the power of policy, not just as, okay, growing the business, but also as growing innovation. And so in your current role, are you able to be an advocate for policy? Are you able to influence that? Is that something that you've been doing or wanting to do? Absolutely. And and to your first point, if you think about design principles, design is best fostered within constraints, right? When you have those boundaries, that's when you can really foster that innovation. So I couldn't agree with you more. And in terms of leading on, on education and advocacy at Better Earth, absolutely. We really try and take a loud voice towards many different topics, but especially expanding composting infrastructure, supporting uh, the growth of uh, compostable food service packaging as a sustainable solution, and enhancing and further incentivizing regenerative agriculture principles as well. And that is so refreshing to hear. And I've heard uh, your other talks and writings that you're so connected to land. And I feel that's such an important part of the puzzle because you can create all the compost you want, but if you, there's no demand for it, then it's a challenge. So how did, did that come to be? How did you so get, get so connected to land and to the idea of better soil? How did that journey happen? Yes, it's fascinating that the topic of, I guess I'm looking at it after, you know, been studying it for so long. It's fascinating that, you know, composting and that side of things has often been so disconnected from the regenerative agriculture conversation. I see them as inherently and intrinsically connected. So in terms of, you know, to pull back around that question at Better Earth, we take a lot of pride in thinking from a systems approach. You know, we are in a mission to make sustainability accessible and to make regenerative circularity achievable. That's what we're here to do. And especially within the food service industry and regenerative circularity, it's a bit of a wonky term, but I feel like this show and the show's listeners <laughs> will know it immediately. But what I mean by that is within our 
within our sphere of influence, within the food service industry, we seek to create a space where not only are we minimizing waste, but really fostering innovation and revitalization across our value chain, right? And we see that as field to fork to field, the fields where our plants are grown to the food service establishment where they're enjoyed back to the fields where our composters serve. So we see all of that as one big circle, always supporting each other. And we are only as successful when all of us are successful together. And so at Better Earth, we seek to, you know, as part of that hub and spoke model, we really try and be that hub to support and uplift everyone around us, um, whether that be through direct investment, education, and continued engagement and initiatives. So in terms of connecting that dot back from compost to regenerative agriculture, we're seeing massive issues from the farming side of extreme soil erosion and soil loss. The UN in 2014 reported that we might only have 60 harvests left. That's massive and very, very scary. It makes it all feel very urgent because it is. And oftentimes farmers are left with only a few choices to mitigate and address this problem. And it's typically chemical fertilizers used from fossil fuels. We saw how disruptive this reliance was with the recent crisis and war in Ukraine disrupting so much of that fertilizer supply chain. We need to build more resilient and localized supply chains. And what better resource for that than compost? So using um, using something that is grown at a hyper-local basis. And for us, what we're trying to do and think about is how we can connect the dots and then get that compost back to the farmers that need it. At a Better Earth level, we are looking into funding programs to connect our farmer network here in the southeastern United States to our compost partners here within the Atlanta and North Carolina region and see how we can help educate them and support further compost application. That's one area of where we as a company are exploring it, but then there's also further opportunities at the policy level as well that I'd be more than happy to elaborate on if you'd like me to. Oh, absolutely. We're going to get more into that, but I actually want to take a side note before I do that. Before we get into Better Earth, because I obviously have many, many questions around <laughs> your work, but I want to talk about your husband. How did you find mm -hmm. him? He seems you. You guys seem to be two peas in a pod, and you know how did that happen? And you know, uh, yeah. And, and tell us more about you guys and your joint effort towards sustainability as well. Absolutely. For those that are listening, I am blushing right now. <laughs> about my husband. Um, so it's so funny. Um, I would hate to say that we met at a bar, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, um, we, my husband and I are both incredibly passionate about uh, sustainability and both work, live and breathe the space. We happen to both be in Paris for the said climate agreement and really hit it off in, uh, in, in a space where just clearly sharing so many passions. To, to what my husband does. Uh, he has been working for the city of Atlanta for, I think, over six years now. He's a deputy chief sustainability officer and has been leading some incredible initiatives across the city to help it become a climate, energy efficiency, and water leader. Yeah, it's brilliant. And of course, I heard so much more about your wedding and the way you guys live. So let's switch to Better Earth. So tell us more about how that happened with, you know, you doing some Netflix series, working in the mayor's office and, you know, all of that. And then you end up with a sustainable packaging uh, organization. So how did they manage to get you? <laughs> you know, um, I feel like this this goes back to the question of how I met John R. And I'll, I'll laugh and say, well, I met Joseph on a ski lift. <laughs> Um, I, as I mentioned, um, I, I was really keen to explore and I've always been very passionate about the role of the private sector to scale solutions, uh, for climate action. I serendipitously met, um, Better Earth's, uh, president Joseph and, and he was sharing his goals for the company, his vision for those that have met Joseph and know him, know that he just brings light and authenticity to everything that he does. And that falls through the entire company and the way that we do things. And so he was sharing his vision for sustainability within this organization and the impact that these types of solutions can have. And I was in, 
And so we started talking together and I came on as the organization's first uh, sustainability director and now I'm vice president of sustainability and lead our both our, our sustainability strategy, both internally as well as externally. Yeah, so let's talk more about uh, just for the listeners, what does Better Earth do? What is the, what is the business model? What are the kind of products that Better Earth is trying to promote? Absolutely. We are a sustainable food service packaging provider. And, you know, we're on a mission to make sustainability accessible and regenerative circularity achievable, right? And we exist because of the mounting environmental crises that are before us. And we firmly believe that the food service industry, you know, is playing a massive role in exacerbating a lot of the environmental problems that we're experiencing. But that also means that big problems create even bigger opportunities and that the food service industry can truly be a linchpin solution towards drawing down carbon, addressing global plastic pollution, and realizing a circular future. So at our core, we provide compostable food service packaging, but we do so much more than that. And, you know, rooted in Joseph's philosophy, truly try and provide resources uh, across the board to help elevate all of our key stakeholders across our value chain so that we grow and excel together in this mission. Yeah, and I see a lot of initiatives very connected to that. So I, one particular initiative I want to learn more about is the, is the idea of farmer's fiber collection. How does that work and why that? And then, of course, uh, you know, I think you're producing more locally in that. So, you know, so just just elaborate on on that initiative. I would love to. So Better Earth, um, we have a variety of different substrates, renewable substrates that that we lean into to create our packaging. But the one that I am most passionate about is our farmer's fiber collection, which is made from domestic perennial native crops here to the southeast. So we have a farmer network of over 60 farmers um, who help us grow switchgrass, sorghum and miscanthus. Um, these, this is not um, grasses that are um, taking over any land that would have otherwise been used for food. This is truly using underutilized and pasture land, surrounding land, um, to help grow these crops. And what's exciting is by using this underutilized land, we're actually able to rewild areas. Studies have indicated, and even just qualitative discussions with the farmers have noted, yeah, I haven't seen birds here in forever until we started this. You know, we're finally starting to see the deer again. The bugs are coming back. So it's really exciting to see how this initiative um, is helping rewild um, these areas, bring back native species. Um, and further than that, what's awesome too, is that it helps sequester carbon. Because it's a perennial crop, you only have to harvest it once a year. And it's a very low input, very low intensive crop. And those tap roots, continue to grow underneath the ground. And a recent excavation found taproots growing over 12 feet deep. So it's, it's really fascinating. And, and from the farmer level, uh, from the economic perspective, um, we're able to provide long-term contracts to our farmer partners, um, and they're able to use equipment that they already have access to. And from a, from a climate and carbon perspective, keep things hyper-localized. So our farmers are all within 100 miles of our manufacturing facility, which is right here near our distribution center in the American Southeast. So it's really, really exciting project and one that we are enthusiastic to continue to grow this type of model nationally. Yeah, I'm going to dig a little deeper into that because you're also based in the like heart of the pulp and paper kind of industry. We have the, um, for those who don't know, we have TAPI, which is the leading, uh, you know, paper uh, technical association of pulp and paper international. That's what it stands for. And that's located in Atlanta. And of course, so you have probably got a lot of brains around there on how to process. These are not easy grasses to actually process. So, so tell me more about the processing system. Uh, do you guys have a pulp mill? What is the capacity? Is it all being converted to food serviceware? Talk a little more about that process, mm -hmm, please. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, we are definitely in the heart of the paper industry here here in Atlanta, Georgia Pacific and others. You know, we focus entirely on tree-free, you know, for this line, tree-free solutions. And so it's definitely a differentiator for us. And within that, our product comes into our facility and then we go through a thermoforming process. So very similar and standard across all compostable molded fiber packaging. So it's pulped down into that slurry. And then imagine, you know, for those that aren't as familiar with thermoforming technology, it's much like baking a cake. <laughs> you have your muffin tin, you uh, put your slurry in there, you press it down, it releases the, the heat, and then you create that mold, right? You create that product from that mold, and then you move on from there. So a majority of, of all of the um, feedstock is going into molded fiber, but our manufacturing partner also also has um, different tissue tissue lines. I think some, yeah, some other uh, similar lines to paper, but from a tree-free alternative. Super. Okay. Now I get it because I was wondering about, because pulping normally needs to be done at scale. So I was mm-hmm. wondering what the mm-hmm. capacity is for, for setting up a pulp mill, because that becomes, you know, you at least need hundred tons a day, you know? And so, so I, I presume, and of course, I'd love for you to elaborate uh, that the person that your partner uses the remainder of the pulp in other uh, substrates that they manufacture. So, so yeah, would uh, would love to know if you know the the process they use for pulping, and then what do they do with the remainder? Certainly. So while I can't speak to the specifics, um, I can say that we've taken a really smart approach to scaling. Um, as you, you as you mentioned. Um, you certainly need a lot to get going and to get moving. Um, we took a very thoughtful approach, maybe even too thoughtful, <laughs> and um, uh, we're very conservative in the way that we onboarded um, this product line. And so and we, we only started with a few machines and have really built out proof of concept and we'll be expanding and expanding rapidly within the year to come. And it's so super, it's, it's really great that you know, the idea of using a variety of local grasses and converting it locally and then, you know, of course, uh, producing it and converting it into a final product. I think that's super interesting. And that definitely differentiates you from various other providers of molded food service ware or sustainable packaging. Uh, what else would differentiate you from the likes of, say, uh, Primeware or an eco product, sort of world-centric? Tell me, tell me more things that you feel are different in, in your Certainly. Case. Yes. And, and I'll start off too with a blanket appreciation and gratitude across our industry as well, because I think that there's, it's a very big pie and we're all mission-based organizations. So I have nothing but just amazing things to say too about all the others that are in this space, because we're all trying to tackle this big problem together. So there's actually a lot of areas where, and I think this is a differentiator for our industry versus others, is um, a lot of collaboration across our industry towards shared goals and shared legislative priorities and like like access to composting infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So just really thankful for the, the friendliness and, and camaraderie across our industry. To Better Earth specifically, and you know, what makes us different, what makes us unique, it goes back to thinking through from a systems approach, you know, and making direct investments across our value chain so that we can be successful together, right? Bringing up and expanding domestic manufacturing to create more access to compostable packaging, making direct investments and creating more access to compost infrastructure as well right here in the Southeast. And then further other uh, direct investments into innovative technologies that will help us meet the goal and the vision that we have. Further, from a team perspective, I think that you, from a, for sustainability to work, you truly need to walk the talk from the inside out, right? You need to live and breathe your mission. And it starts with treating people right. That idea of regenerative circularity, it starts at home. For us, we we take a lot of pride in, in our regenerative workplace philosophy. So we've in, instated a lot of progressive workplace benefits for our team. Further than that, our team, we want to ensure represents the communities that we serve. So proud that over 60% of our 
our team is from BIPOC groups, Black, Indigenous, or other persons of color. And we have a wide variety of diversity in terms of geographic diversity represented across our team as well, from Ghana to Kenya to India to Peru. I could go on and on. It leads to just lively and incredible conversations, especially when we're all cooking together. Because <laughs> being in this industry, you've got to love food. <laughs> so, so I'm very thankful for the diverse and warm team that I get to tackle these problems alongside. And then last but not least is that direct partnership um, and engagement with our customers. You know, as we think about our key stakeholders, our customers right there, right there. And uh, we take a very consultative approach with everything that we do and ensure that we are really leaning in um, and have that operator in mind. You'll see that most especially in our innovation processes and how we bring the partner along towards understanding first their sustainability goals, thinking through how that can connect with the end of life in mind, right? Designing around compostability and then bringing them forward to build out a suite of products that work best for them. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And I'm glad you tackled it from numerous perspectives, uh, not just the product itself. And uh, But coming back to the products, I, of course, and, and, and just, just a side note, it's lovely to even see the diversity on your website. It's just, it's just uh, you. like you said, you know, it's, it's a huge camaraderie uh, that can be seen on the, on the team and the website itself. So you're so right. And again, you know, each time, you know, we have to go out to dinner you're right. Everybody is so passionate about food and they all have connections to different food people. So it's, it's a big fight, literally, you know, let's go to, let's go here. You know, this one is better. This one is more sustainable. And, you know, so, so it's an interesting place we are in when it comes to food, but digging deeper into, into the products, how do you actually go about choosing your partners? Because I see that you have a wide array of products. You're importing a lot of products. You also have PLA based products. So it's it's a it's bamboo it's it's bagas it's, it's it's straw and it's a it's a huge variety including cups and clamshells and so how does how does that process look like how do you decide you know I'm going to work with this supplier and this is the kind of range of products that I'm going to have from them yes and and so variety supports accessibility right with with accessibility being our mission there's there's key variables there to make something accessible. You know, the, the two most important variables is performance and price, right? If we're going to make sustainability work, it's got to work and you have to be able to afford it. So those are key things that we're keeping in mind in addition to that initial and fundamental component, right? Designing for end of life uh, with everything that we do. So we have incredible manufacturing partners that we work with and have strong relationships with as we do across our entire value chain. We share key values that help drive the work that we do and innovation processes that we build out together. But also from the customer side, right? Those are our partners as well. You know, we have a we service a wide variety of needs, whether that be you, your local coffee shop, like the Daily here in, in Atlanta or the Daily Chew, to um, much broader and larger customers. We service and support folks from Canada to the United States, Caribbean and the UK. So we have a very global distribution and are very proud to be able to support so many different needs uh, across the food service industry. Ah, I didn't realize uh, your distribution was that wide. That's good to hear. And we're going to step into that a little bit before I, I have a couple of uh, other things which I want to explore before uh, we get into that. In terms of, um, so you, you, one of the things that was really interesting and uh, I, I was intrigued uh, that you're actually customizing the packaging by printing. And that's always been a challenge for the industry. And I presume you're using pad printing, but I want to delve a little bit deeper into, say, bat size. Uh, and, and again, your website is extremely transparent, so you can talk a lot about uh, things like that there. But it'll be great to hear, one, how do you print? Uh, two, what needs to be the bat size? Because I presume that'll become a, a, a challenge. And then how do you decide what you will go ahead with and what you will not in terms of uh, printing, because I guess it changes the SKUs and uh, things like that. 
I love that you brought this up because that would definitely be another better earth differentiator. <laughs> I was actually, I was actually hoping yes. you'd bring that up. <laughs> it slipped my mind earlier. So thank you. Um, and yes, custom printing is a massive, a massive component of what we do and who we are. We are creative people. Your packaging, people often see packaging as a commodity, right? A clamshell is a clamshell is a clamshell, which it is, right? A clamshell is. And there are so much more opportunities to think creatively about this space and this surface area that is truly an advertisement of someone's brand or an advertisement of your values or your story. So we think and help uh, brands realize the full potential of the surface area that is leaving their establishment, right? And following that person wherever they may go to, you know, going back to storytelling, opening up that clamshell, seeing that beautiful image across the top of it, and a, a colleague asking them, oh, where's that from? And immediately kickstarting a conversation that leads to more business for that uh, establishment. So uh, we do all of our custom printing for our molded fiber lines in-house at our Clarkston, Georgia facility. And we use a digital printing process, incredibly sustainable, all compostable inks. And so with that, one can change their design within a matter of hours. It's a very quick process. So it's because it's also done in-house, we have very low minimums, which is very different from different custom print processes, low minimums and low lead times. So once again, going back to that accessibility component. And then from there, because it's digital printing, it's truly in the eyes of the beholder. It's what they want. We have designs as simple as a basic QR, a basic logo or QR code, but we really encourage and support brands. And we even offer live design sessions with our in-house design team to show brands the potential that that surface area can offer. I mean, you can incorporate full digital photography. That's how fine that this printing process is. And so you can put a digital photograph on there. You can incorporate QR codes or even augmented reality that helps transform that story that they're trying to tell. Think of a college campus that might really want to scream from the rooftops, this is compostable, please compost this here, and their standardized branding. So that environmental component, that environmental story can really help that product get from A to B where, where, that, where they want it to go and meet their sustainability goals. Likewise, a brand could use the opportunity to elevate their own impact metrics or explain why they have chosen to invest in sustainable and compostable food service packaging. So there's truly no limit to the opportunities within custom printing, and it's something that we're very proud of. Yeah, and that's truly a disruption because I know that I've been in the industry for a while. I know the printing is tricky. It's not a, it's not a straightforward thing, and you guys having cracked it is a great differentiator on its own. Staying with the products and the supply chain, you made a trip to China. Talk to us more about that and how it changed you, how it gave you, gave you insights on how the product is produced. And I'm like sure there must be a lot of learning that came from that trip. Certainly. So Better Earth has a variety of different manufacturing partners, both domestic and overseas. One thing that I am really proud of and appreciate within our team is those strong partnerships across all of our manufacturing partners. This stems once again from our leadership and from our CEO, Joseph Build. One thing that is fascinating about him is that he is actually completely fluent in Mandarin. He, he grew up on a farm in Michigan and ultimately found himself living in China for several years and, and taught himself Chinese. So he is incredibly multifaceted and there's truly a certain level of respect when you can go into a place and speak someone's language and speak together, right? Um, not through a translator, not in a certain staccato, but um, directly within someone's culture and language. And so I had the uh, privilege of being able to join Joseph and a few other of our team members to China um, to really engage with a variety of different manufacturing partners and most importantly, emphasize our commitment to sustainability and communicate what that would look like in terms of our partnership moving forward. So it was a way for me to gain insight around their current operations and energy, um, energy intensity and sustainability uh, initiatives that they already had happening, um, as well as communicate our goals and intentions going into the next few years for our sustainability strategy. So it was a wonderful learning opportunity for 
for me. I left um, so deeply appreciative of the Chinese culture. I had never been before. So it was just fascinating and fantastic. And I was also curious um, going in as a vegan, (laughs) how it would be from a food perspective. And I could not have been more amazed with the beautiful array of food um, in China. And I was more than accommodated. <laughs> I felt like rolling off the, you know, away from the table at times uh, because of the amount of beautiful food. So um, I really appreciated the opportunity. I learned a lot and we truly established and continue to strengthen those partnerships. But once again, it stems back to those direct relationships and being able to you know, truly speak to each other in a shared language. Yeah, I'm a vegan too. So, and I've traveled to China many, many, many times and all over those areas, China, Taiwan, Japan. And yes, there is a worry always, but they tend to feed you so much, right? So there's these banquets and something will keep coming. And, and you're right, by the end, you have no idea how you're going to get up and walk. The other tip for next time is if there's any challenge, choose a Buddhist restaurant. They're normally attached to temples. And well, they have a lot of raw meat. I don't know if you are into that, but otherwise, you know, they're 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 pretty good. They'll always have at least completely vegan food, so you're not wondering about what is going to come next and what's going to go in. And how does that? So let me let me take you up on this. How does being a vegan play into sustainability for you? It's a wonderful question for me. Being a vegan is my way of taking action on climate change three times a day, if if not more sometimes. <laughs> so I obviously love documentaries um, and have always um, been very impacted by documentaries. I remember watching Cowspiracy several years ago and one of the main narrators, you know, looking directly into the camera and saying that if you are going to be leading an environmental life, if you will be an environmental professional, going plant-based is one of the most powerful ways that you can make a difference. And that stuck with me. At that time, I was about to be moving to New York City and it was a change in my life. And I was like, I'll experiment with this and see how it goes. I want to say it's now been six or seven years later and I have never looked back. I would say we're more flexible vegetarians than anything else and offer ourselves grace. But across the board, what I have experienced in being plant-based is a much stronger connection to food. My husband and I take a lot of pride in growing as much food as we can in our backyard. We have about six raised beds and I think four different composting systems now. So we've been able to learn about seasonality and the ebbs and flows of food, engaging in our local farmer's markets and being able to think through diverse and multicultural uh, menus, uh, you know, that really bring in and embrace plant-based cooking. Um, So I think that we've learned a lot through it. And for me personally, have just gotten to get my hands dirty in the garden, as well as really think through cooking in a different way. So it's been impactful for us and for our lifestyle. Yeah, my wife comes from a family with five brothers, all of who are hunters. And one of them was over yesterday. And I'm the I'm the chief cook. I mean, my wife doesn't even enter the kitchen. And, and uh, of course, then, you know, then I can choose the groceries, I can do what I want. And, uh, and he was like, he and his wife were like, if we had food like this, we would definitely not be meeting meat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's so interesting, right? Once you get it right. And the other story that came to my mind is that at my older kids, I've been trying to get them to watch Earthlings and they refuse. And so you can eat meat after you watch Earthlings. <laughs> and they just don't. They say, no, we're not going to do that. We would like to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Good Garbage is sponsored by PACA, a family of brands that produces compostable packaging and works to implement regenerative solutions. PACA's new project is to bring compostable food serviceware and food carry products to the North American marketplace. Learn more at PACA.com. Now back to the conversation. Okay, I want to ask a random question. How was meeting with Jane Goodall? Oh, (laughs) Jane Goodall is an incredible person. I have had the pleasure to be able to connect with her a couple of times and I would say be graced with her presence a couple of times. She is a woman who has truly strived to create her own path and 
I don't know. She's just kind of the matriarch of all matriarchs in, in terms of environmental stewardship and conservation. And uh, where's an heir? Like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. But where's an heir that brings anybody in? It makes anybody feel welcome and like they can participate in this space and in this movement. You know, we have been fortunate to truly see the, the rise in her program, Roots and Shoots. If folks aren't familiar with it, I highly recommend you check it out. It, it helps inspire and empower children to be a part of uh, and learn more about conservation. And she has just continued to be a leader for all of us. And so it's just amazing to see that type of female leadership in the sustainability space. Yeah, we've been blessed by her as well. My mother is good friends with her and they work a lot on roots and shoots and mm. uh, various programs. And again, the person who heads it in India is close friends again with us. But yeah, incredible, just incredible person and such a such a sweetheart, actually. <laughs> you know, when you meet her, she's just so easy down to earth and, you know, like, yeah. The environment's time. grandmother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so happy that you got to be in her space. So before we start going towards the final question, I have one interesting question that I want to pick your brains on. If you were to have the ideal policy structure uh, in this world, you know, this would be the policy in for, for, for maybe uh, food, food packaging, compostability, whichever way you want to look at it. What would that be? What would that spell like? As much, elaborate as much as you can. What does your ideal policy uh, look like? Oh, I love this. And I'm almost nervous because I do feel I'll forget things. So I'm going to try my best to make this as comprehensive as possible while also succinct and hope that I don't forget some, some major programs. But in terms of an ideal policy, there will never be a truly ideal policy because there's always going to be gives and takes um, in everything that we do. If I were to wave a magic wand and see some things moving forward and accomplished, I would love to see more, more funding within the farm bill attributed to soil health and composting, as well as connecting compost, finished compost, to farmers to help reduce their reliance on chemical fertilizers. I would love to see more, um, more funding addressing food waste in and of itself and innovative technologies that can help address food waste from the start. And then from a packaging perspective, to zero in on that for a minute, I have been so excited to see the momentum and extended producer responsibility. I think that this is going to be a critical tool in our arsenal towards truly addressing the plastic pollution crisis. So in an ideal scenario, we are seeing that unsustainable packaging has a very, very high fee associated with it that makes it a lot more economically unviable. And then likewise, with other single-use packaging that is sustainable, like plant-based packaging, that it has a lower fee, but there's still a fee. And ultimately, all of that money is going towards funding those closed-loop systems and that infrastructure necessary to help address and um, circulate that waste. So I really hope to see further EPR legislation. And further, I hope to see more national standards um, around standardizing labeling across both plastics and compostable packaging. I think that there's a lot of frustration in the space and a lack of education because to date, labeling has not been standardized. You know, we think about any experience navigating our roads, right? When you go down and see a stop sign, it's universal. You know exactly what to do. And within different regions, there are nuances and unique road signs that we all figure out, right? And But driving a car is a very standard operation that includes standard signals that we can react to. I believe that we can get there with our packaging as well. The Federal Trade Commission is actually reviewing their green guides right now. Um, and there's actually an incredible opportunity. The public comment period has been extended through April for us to finally create some standardized labeling that I hope can help elevate the importance of uh, transitioning to a biobasic economy, making it very clear to uh, consumers what they're holding and help combat greenwashing among packaging that is kind of like a lookalike 
plastic product, but is neither recyclable nor compostable. And then from the composting side, growing composting infrastructure, beginning to see more organic spans to landfill. We are starting to see some pop up in different states around the country, but I really hope that we see more, just more emphasis on building infrastructure. A wonky wish list item that I'll close with is if we could get all of the counties <laughs> across the United States together to address zoning laws for composting. That would be fantastic, too. One big conference where we can just set the record straight, because unfortunately, composters have to navigate a myriad of barriers just to grow and create infrastructure because composting is labeled differently within different uh, counties for zoning. Um, is it agricultural? Is it industrial? You know, there's a lot of not in my backyard sentimentality because people aren't educated on, on what composting is and isn't. Um, and so that would be another major wish list item. And the last, last thing would be those same counties in that same imaginary conference would also start talking about the power of reusable packaging, right? If we're thinking you know, into the future of the sustainable packaging space. There are also varying and conflicting health codes about reusable takeout wear. And so in that same conference, they'll, they'll figure that out as well. So access to reusable takeout wear will be easier <laughs> and increased participation. That's impressive and comprehensive. <laughs> and I thank you for that. I have, to, I have to make a mental note to send this part of the podcast to both Rhodes Jepsen at BPI and Frank Franciosi at U.S. Composting Council. As you were speaking, I was thinking this needs to be sent to at least the two of them who are going to influence a lot of uh, the policy change. That's, and you looked at it from different angles. And I was thinking, you know, you said in the beginning, you know, you might forget something. And I was like, what will I need to remind her on? And of course, the listeners don't know that you're going to be a mom in three months. So, so you're, you're definitely forgiven for, for forgetting with all the hormonal changes you are going through. So, 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 you know, so well done on that. That's really comprehensive. Labeling, composting, products, uh, councils, methodology. You've covered a lot of ground there. And that has to take me towards uh, the closure. Uh, in if you look at Better Earth today, and you can take a timeline that you feel comfortable with, five years, three years, 10 years, and uh, what would you like Better Earth to become in terms of scale, in terms of influence, uh, in terms of impact? What do you, how do you see Better Earth evolving in the next few years? In the next few years, I see Better Earth continuing to become a leader in sustainable food service packaging. I see us continuing to support more and more um, food service operators and meeting their sustainability goals. I And with that and with that momentum, us being able to truly continue to help uplift everyone within the value chain. So us continuing to grow and expand our network of composters and supporting access to composting infrastructure, truly closing the loop across all of our packaging and building out more partnerships across our you know, domestic supply chain as well. So in terms of where I see ourselves in a few years, I, I just think that we're merely at the beginning of where we can go and where we can go all together. It's a really exciting space for us to be. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the journey, truly. And I know that those conditions, those right operating conditions are actually growing alongside us and alongside our industry. The momentum is there and the legislative momentum is there. So I know that we'll all continue to grow together. Super. The last one, what does good garbage mean to you? I love this question. I was looking forward to it and I've been thinking about it. And I have a simple answer. And I would say that good garbage is no garbage. <laughs> and as we think about regenerative circularity, you know, this topic throughout this conversation, we're minimizing waste and every single thing has value, right? And so in terms of good garbage, it's rather than putting the term garbage to it, it's a resource and recycling those resources through our systems and continuing to give them new life. So that's what good garbage looks like to me. Thank you so much. That was very succinctly put. And uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> Uh, joining us today, Savannah. It's been such a joy to speak to you, to, uh, to really, you know, I could really feel your passion on the subject and that's uh, so wonderful. And uh, I'm just, I'm just so excited to 
see in the next 20 years what a child from John R and you is going to do because that is going to be something right with the two of you coming together and Aww. bringing another the soul that is wanting to come through you so best of luck for that best of luck for this journey that you've undertaken and keep inspiring us thank you so much for being here and being on the show thank you so much for the space i had so much fun thank you for listening to the good garbage podcast Follow us on social media to never miss an episode. Links are in the description below. I'm your host, Beth Krishna. See you next time.